everybody. Welcome to episode 57 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch Podcast. And soon, a brand new podcast called Murder on the Couch. I know, true crime. There's a lot of them. But this is one that I'm doing with my wonderful, amazing daughter, Sydney, who is a true crime aficionado. And we talk about this stuff often. Whenever she's in town, we talk about cases, true crime podcast, and then I can't help myself. I like to throw a little bit of a therapy or psychology spin. So at one point we decided let's just record some things. So if you go, I'll put it in the show notes, but if you go to the Virtual Couch YouTube channel, there's about a minute and a half sneak preview clip that I think that you will really enjoy. And that is going to be coming out pretty soon. And thank you so much for all the feedback from the episode 56 with Ashley Boyson. That episode, it just kind of went insane, but I know that she has a tremendous following, but even more so than just having a following, she has that because she is a powerful, powerful person. And just the mix, the the feedback I've got has been really cool because it's people that are saying, here's somebody that has been through just one of the most horrific things that you could even imagine, literally the thing that true crime shows are made of. But she made no secret about how difficult things were, how she didn't know what she didn't know, how there was a process of this waking up to the narcissism in the relationship of her husband that had been murdered, and then also experiencing narcissism in the next relationship. And now she's in a really good place and she's doing big things with her life and helping people and there for her kids. And so it just shows you that life will continue to move on. And this entire waking up to whether it's the, again, narcissism in a relationship with your spouse or with a parent or an in-law, an employer, any of that, that it's just a process. It takes time. It's going to take a little bit longer than you probably would like for it to take. And wherever you are, that's, that's right where you're at. And that's the place you need to be. Because if you're even listening to this, that means that At some point, you weren't aware of what narcissism or emotional immaturity even was, and now you're aware, and you're thinking about it more, and you're listening to things and reading things, and now you've got a nice little confirmation bias. We're talking about the good kind. We're talking about the kind when you buy a cool new car, and then you see them everywhere, and you feel pretty validated of thinking, okay, that must be a good car. So now you're starting to recognize the emotional immaturity and the relationships around you, and maybe not feeling as crazy. And again, it takes a little bit longer, a lot longer then we would like for it to start to really gel and feel like, okay, I think I'm going to be okay. So right now, if you're listening and you still feel like this whole thing is overwhelming, then you're a human being and you're going through a process. And I will say this until the cows come home, wherever that phrase came from, but you did not know what you did not know. And now you know, and you're starting to learn the tools, but guess what? You're probably not implementing the tools and that's no shame or guilt intended. Again, it's because it's part of the process of being a human being. Our brain's like to go path of least resistance and this is all new and scary. So you go from I didn't know what I didn't know, do I know? Now I'm kind of not doing. And that's a pretty scary place to be because it can feel sometimes like I wish I didn't know, but you do. And you know, and eventually you're going to start doing more of the things that will help you raise that emotional baseline, get that PhD in gaslighting, get out of those unproductive conversations, set healthy boundaries and know that a boundary is a challenge to the emotionally immature narcissist. And then that last little lever is going to fall into place where you'll recognize that there is nothing that I can do, me, that I can do to cause them to have the aha moment or the epiphany. That needs to come with them. And so often, the more that I try to give them that aha moment or that epiphany, I'm in essence just saying, hey, I found a new page in this playbook of the buttons you can press later on, but I'm going to hand it to you anyway, because I think maybe this one might be different. And that is the tale of the pathologically kind. 
And that's maybe a little bit of a plug too. If you are someone that is in a relationship with the narcissistic fill in the blank, fill in the blank does not mean a hole. Fill in the blank can be a spouse, you know, again, an in-law, an entity, an employer, a friend, and you just feel like you are made to feel insane, reach out because I've got a private women's Facebook group now that is just amazing. I've got enough uh, men now that are in these relationships as well that I think we're ready to fire that group up in an even more interesting population. And I'm grateful for this or the people that are saying, I think I might be the narcissist and not the one where you're the person saying, okay, I feel crazy in the relationship. And now am I the narcissist? Because I'm hearing all these things. Or if you are the person who are starting to say, oh, I am extremely emotionally mature, manipulative, I gaslight and I can't help myself. And my spouse probably is going through all of these things. Then reach out. Let me know because we're putting a lot of groups together, which is actually a plug for by next week. So that would be the week of January 20 something. Then the Waking Up to Narcissism premium podcast question and answer podcast episode will be released. And there is going to be, in essence, a trailer or a zero episode. And I'm going to explain a lot more about what that project is about. It is going to be a premium paid subscription-based podcast that will be nothing but questions and answers. And that's because the questions that are coming in from this podcast, I think now we're up to maybe 100 pages of single-spaced Google document questions. And I know that there's just not enough resources out there. And when people are in that I'm, I'm starting to learn phase that they really are just taking in so much data and they have so many questions. And if you can't find the right place to ask those questions, and if you are trying to work with a therapist who maybe doesn't really understand emotional immaturity, personality disorders, it can be maddening. So I want to answer those questions. And then the money from that premium podcast proceeds will go to fund the nonprofit that is going to be there to help people in these narcissistic or emotionally abusive relationships. So look for that. One of the quickest ways to know when that's going to be available is sign up for my newsletter at TonyOverbay.com or also you can follow me on social media, TonyOverbay underscore LMFT on Instagram is probably the easiest way. So let me read a question and then I want to talk about an article that I found that is so, so fascinating. So the person says, hi, Tony, I just listened to my first Waking Up to Narcissism podcast last night and I can't believe how accurate and absolutely spooky, which I love that word spooky. Spooky it was to hear your words. I recently became aware or more fully aware of what my husband is. So many of the tools for communicating and interacting with him I'd already come to understand and employ, but it was striking to hear them out loud from somebody else. I never knew before now what to label him and his behaviors, and I always felt like this was something unique to him or us, and that no one would ever understand or be able to help, and more than that, that it was all just me, that I was overreacting or making anything a bigger deal than it really was. That if I just went along, agreed, and complied with everything he wanted, everything would be fine. That we'd be able to make a nice home and raise our kids to be happy, healthy, and ready to take on their own life and embrace their path enthusiastically and well-balanced. So wrong. I feel I'm so overwhelmed with the amount of damage that's been done as a result of this 25-plus year engagement and marriage with a narcissist or an emotionally immature husband. Despite so many attempts to leave and repeated returns to this marriage, I was never able to fully disengage and I kept getting sucked back in. His capacity to find and exploit vulnerability, fear, and doubt has no end. I've been away from him and our home for the last six months, and now I never would have thought this, but I'm happy in the moment day to day. I feel so much lighter not being around him and subjected to his nonstop toxicity. So now I'm looking for tools I need now that I'm in this space, separated physically and living a life apart from him to stay apart. Trying not to be drawn back into his conspiracies, his attempts to instill fear, doubt, 
or the syrupy pleading about how wonderful we are together and how foolish it is to throw away all of these years and how we're soulmates, and especially since our repeated history has been that I always do return. I want to, and I'm determined to break this cycle. I don't have any more time to waste on this relationship, so how do I maintain this long term? What resources or support is there for people like me that have sustained so many years of emotional abuse, gaslighting, mental abuse, and all the damage as a result? I would like my amygdala to return to normal, please. I appreciate the opportunity to reach out and thankful to have happened upon your show. So much gold here. And I think these are, this is the framework of most of the emails that I get is someone that is finally recognized. And this person, she says so much, there's so much in just a couple of these sentences in particular, where she talks about sucked back in and his capacity to find and exploit vulnerability, fear and doubt has no end. And I've been going pretty big on this, I think, the last few months. And that is the concept that as someone starts to wake up to that emotional immaturity or narcissism in the relationship, and they start to recognize they have a voice, that their opinions matter. And and I don't, I'm going to say that I, you know, this might sound negative, but I'm kind of wanting to just normalize this process, that it's a real difficult thing to start to recognize this and not start to express yourself and start to try and do that fifth rule of interacting with the narcissist that I talk often about of still wanting to just try to give them that aha moment, but just an aggressive aha moment that they will understand now that it is okay for you to have your own opinion and that is okay for you to, to speak up and you are going to start doing that more. And unfortunately, that isn't what is going to change that other person. As a matter of fact, you're handing them this data in real time of what other buttons to push. And those buttons come reflexively from the narcissist or the emotionally immature. So when you say, I finally am going to speak my voice, you can watch as a variety of responses that I could probably put on this wheel of narcissism could ensue. Finally, I've been begging you to say something our whole life. I ask your opinion all the time. You never give it. Or it could even be, oh, okay, so now you've got everything figured out. You're the smart one now. I guess I'm the dumb one, you know, or, okay, well, yeah, you go and do whatever the heck it is you want to do and see how you like it there because I'm going to tell your parents or I'm going to tell the courts or everybody that you're crazy. And do you remember that one time that you didn't help the kids with their homework and I'm going to show that you're an unfit mother? And so the emotionally mature narcissist at that point is it's not like there's going to be anything different where that aha moment is still going to come. So unfortunately, when you get more angry and frustrated and fired up, then that is now just aggressively just throwing these buttons over to your partner, where maybe you used to hand them the buttons kind of kindly. Hey, I think you could talk a little more nice to the kids like that. And that's like a kind handing over of the button. And now you're just chucking those buttons at them as hard as you can. So yeah, they might hurt a little bit, but man, he's going to throw them right back at you and throw them back probably even harder. And and so I think this is one of the most difficult things is that whole body keeps the score, trauma, vibe, when you finally feel like I just can't take it anymore. And now I've been given a voice and I hear about other people that have a similar problem and that my relationship isn't the only one and that, holy cow, I did not even know what I didn't know. I mean, even as I'm saying it right now, I feel like, you know, my own heart rate is elevating. And so that's that part where I like what she said at the end. I would like to be able to get my amygdala back to normal. So I feel like the unfortunate part is when somebody gets angry and frustrated, then their fight or flight response kicks in. We, we talk so often about the flight, you know, or even the fawn where somebody just shuts down. But when you start to realize, oh my gosh, I did not have to be dealing with this my whole life, then that fight response kicks in. And unfortunately, when your heart rate elevates and you go into that fight or flight response, and it's that fight one in particular, then that is also triggering the person that you are now in conflict with. 
And now their amygdala is right there hijacked as well. But unfortunately, now you're dealing with the emotional immaturity of a 10-year-old boy who is now just going to throw out all kinds of things to try to hurt you in that moment. And it can be very, very bad uh, things, very bad accusations and words. And, and so just know that unfortunately, that's part of this process. So when you then are able to step back from that moment, that's the part where you got to give yourself grace, you know, take a breather. And that's why I appreciate this person saying they did have to get away from this person to even start to feel like they were okay. And so when she said, when I left her home, now I'm so happy in the moment day to day, I feel so much lighter not being around him. That goes back to that visceral or gut reaction that your emotions travel two and a half times faster than your logic. When data comes in through your eyes or your ears, it's converted to these little electrical signals that go right to that amygdala and it says, okay, is this safe? And if you do not feel safe, then your brain is going to say, well, we don't even need those uh, frontal lobes. We don't need logic or reason right now. We need adrenaline. We need cortisol. We need to shut down that logical part of the brain because there's no negotiating with a saber-toothed tiger and now it is on. And so that is going to happen the more that you're around somebody that has been emotionally, physically, sexually, verbally, uh, spiritually, financially abusive. So part of that waking up process is going to be this frustration. So if at any point when you recognize, oh, my amygdala is on its way to getting hijacked right now. I'm noticing people getting out of their seats on my amygdala plane and, and they look a little sketchy. They're the, probably these hijackers. At that point, then we got to land that plane. You got to get out of the room and you will hear things on your way out of, okay, fine, run, leave. What about me? I mean, the buttons, that doesn't mean the buttons are not going to be pushed. Again, if you're setting a boundary that whenever things are starting to go south, I'm going to exit the conversation. I'm going to exit the situation then know that that boundary now became a challenge. Oh, sure you will. You know, you like you always do. You run away. This just shows. I'm going to tell everybody about this. All oh, the buttons will just keep being pressed even on your way out. So back to when she says, I'm determined to break this cycle. Hey, you are. You know, you are because you're figuring it out. You're writing into a podcast. You're listening to a podcast. You're getting out of the environment. So your amygdala will calm down. I don't have any more time to waste on the relationship. I so can appreciate that. But how do I maintain this long term? I go back to the first rule of those five rules I like to talk about. And this is raising that emotional baseline time. This is you time. This is self-care is not selfish time. So I want to talk about this a big, big soapbox of mine is how we handle our thoughts. And so I feel like there's uh, three things that I think that we just don't quite do correctly or we could do better with our thoughts. So the first thing is that when we are left to just ruminate, and contemplate and try to figure out and try to make sense. It's not the most productive thing to do right now. Not not at all, as a matter of fact. Because right now, what you need to do is do things. Because the more that you try to just sit and figure out and stew and ruminate, then the more that you are going to start to feel that guilt, that shame, that maybe it was me. Uh, Maybe I did something wrong. Okay, I understand now. Maybe I can go back in. And Michael Tuhig, who is a world-renowned acceptance and commitment therapy researcher that was on the virtual couch a few weeks ago, had some amazing quotes. And one of those was he talked about healthy, happy people spend 80% of their time doing things that are important. And he made a point to say, it's not just doing things that are fun, but doing things that are important. So doing things that are important is not ruminating. Doing things that are important are doing things, things that are of value to you. Things that will, at some point, even a a healthy distraction, it will occupy your time because, again, sitting in that discomfort of the relationship and the potential breaking of a relationship, 
then that's where you're going to start to feel all those emotions. And you're going to want to alleviate that feeling of discomfort by wanting to go and make peace with the emotionally immature person. Now, Michael Tuhek also then said that unhealthy, unhappy people spend 80% of their time, in essence, chasing pleasure or fun. And then I have since added to his quote, so I'm hoping that he would be fine with this, but I have since added to his quote that then, yeah, 80% or unhappy, unhealthy people spend 80% of their time seeking this pleasure, but also trying to avoid discomfort or pain. And when we're trying to get rid of that, then it becomes even more prevalent and just upfront. So with that said, that I feel like it is, it's so important to just go and do, do things, do things that matter, do things that are important, because that is going to keep you out of the rumination phase. And really at that point early on, you're trying to make sense of things that just don't make sense. But back to the concepts around things that I think we could do better when it comes to our thoughts. First thing that I think we do that is unproductive is we say, what's wrong with me? Why am I even thinking about this? Why am I doing this? Why am I going through this? Why is this so difficult? Why, why, why? And let's start with nothing's wrong with you. You're a human and you think and feel and behave the way you do because you're you. Again, you are the product of your nature, your nurture, your birth order, your DNA, abandonment, rejection, hopes, fears, dreams. That is what makes you, you. So guess what comes along with that? Your thoughts, your feelings, and your emotions. Nothing's wrong with you. You're not broken. You're a human being. So when we say what's wrong with me, nothing. Part two is I need to stop thinking about this. I need to stop thinking about him. I need to stop thinking about how I can fix this. But then that's also saying I need to stop thinking about the plaid elephant wearing a tan cowboy hat. So right now I'd imagine we all just thought of a plaid elephant wearing a tan cowboy hat. And I even tried to do one that I can't even quite muster up the image, but I sure did. So when you tell yourself don't think something, your brain's like, I will continue to think it. Psychological reactance, that instant negative reaction of being told what to do, it is built in, it is an innate, it's a survival mechanism. So instead of what's wrong with me, nothing, I need to stop thinking that. No, I just need to notice that I'm thinking that. And then the other portion of that that I think that we don't quite do as productive as we can is we think, well, okay, instead of thinking about all the bad things or instead of trying to think about how it could work, I'm going to think about all the horrible things that he's done. But even then, we're still paying way too much emotional, we're burning emotional calories and spending this extra energy on still thinking about him. We have to think about the positive to then think about the negative. So instead, this is just a moment to say, man, check that out. Look at what I'm thinking right now. Thinking about um, telling myself the old, I can figure it out story. Or I'm telling myself the old, if I would have only done this story, that's adorable. Thank you, brain. That's what you've been doing. I appreciate it. It hasn't really worked very well. So now I'm going to go do. And then your brain's going to say, oh, what are you going to do? You don't even know what to do. There we go again. You know, oh, it's the old, I'm not even sure what to do story. So right now I'm going to do anything. I am going to walk outside and interact with the world, life. I'm going to watch a a show that I've heard about. I'm going to play a game. I, I mean, those don't sound like the most productive things in the world, but they are far more productive than trying to figure out how can I go back into the relationship and make it different when I've been trying that for two decades. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit because I found an article that I stumbled upon and I I know I use the phrase pathologically kind often and I believe it was a couple of episodes ago where I was going through the five rules of interacting with narcissists and I might have answered that question about where did that pathologically kind concept come from and it comes from Ross Rosenberg's work in the human magnet syndrome but it turns out he didn't actually say pathologically kind. 
he was talking about that the kind people that are assuming the best or are thinking the best and others. And as a matter of fact, let me pull up human magnet syndrome. And I love Ross's work and he's been a guest on the podcast. And here is what he says. So the human magnet syndrome thesis, he said, due to unconscious trauma-based psychological forces, codependence and pathological narcissists are almost always attracted to each other. The resulting relationship is mostly breakup resistant and narcissists benefit the most from this situation. And here's what I appreciate is he takes on the term codependency. He says codependency is both a relationship and an individual condition that can only be resolved by the codependent. Many codependents are attracted to and maintain long-term breakup resistant relationships with pathological narcissists. And here's where I think I got the pathological kindness, this next concept that he talks about. He said, most codependents are selfless and deferential to the needs and desires of others over themselves. They are pathologically caring, responsible, and sacrificing people whose altruism and good deeds are rarely reciprocated. So I love the concept even when we talk about confabulated memory. Look at me confabulating that story right there after reading that. And I had read it many times. Then I jump on when I do an episode about pathological loneliness and I find his the more about the human magnet syndrome and what Ross talks about is self-love deficit disorder, which is one of the things that he's bringing into the zeitgeist to address the, the almost formerly known as codependency. And so he talks about pathologically caring. And then I moved forward from there, calling the people pathologically kind. And I think it really does still fit. So he said that they are pathologically caring, responsible, and sacrificing people whose altruism and good deeds are rarely reciprocated. So he says, while some codependents are resigned to their seemingly permanent relationship role, others actively, albeit unsuccessfully, attempt to change it. These people have become preoccupied with opportunities to avoid, change, and or control their narcissistic partners. And despite the iniquities in their relationships and the consequent suffering, they do not end their partnerships. So he said codependency is not just limited to romantic couplings as it manifests itself in varying degrees in most other significant relationships. And so what I appreciate about that is that fits right into my number five rule. The nothing you will say or do will cause them to have the aha moment or the epiphany. And so I feel like that's where he talks about these in his view of codependency or these pathologically caring or I call them now pathologically kind people that they are almost what he says resigned to the seemingly permanent relationship role. Others actively, albeit unsuccessfully, attempting to change it. But the people become preoccupied, where I would say you're spending a lot of emotional energy and burning a lot of emotional calories, which literally will leave people feel absolutely exhausted and sometimes unable to show up as the best version of themselves with their kids or in their, the workplace or with their friends because they are preoccupied with opportunities to avoid change and or control their narcissistic partners. And again, he says, despite that iniquity, because they can never cause that other person to have the aha moment then it leads to this consequent suffering, but they are not the ones to end the partnerships. And as a matter of fact, when you have that pathological narcissist or incredibly emotionally immature person, when you provide them more data in your attempt to try and solve or fix the relationship in general, then that will come back to bite you. I was talking with someone recently and they said that they, in a moment of just tenderness, it was a guy who said he reached out to his partner and said, hey, I realized that I wasn't the, the best person years ago. I didn't give you the attention or the love that you really desired. And this is somebody who I think has continually gone back and tried to give that other person uh, the aha moment. 
And then sure enough, this person said that it wasn't very long before that was then used against him. So now every time that the, well, every time there's an all or nothing statement, but often now when they argue, then his spouse will bring up the, okay, see, you've already admitted that you weren't that great of a person or you didn't give me what I need. So now you mustn't be doing that again. So here in a moment of tenderness where this person offered up this, you know, the guy had self-confronted and he had really realized that he, he played a role in this, that when he presented that to his partner, now it continually gets used against him. So that's the concepts around that human magnet syndrome, the pathologically kind. And that is what has led to me wanting to break down this article because I think that this thing is just so fascinating because on that topic of kindness and kindness is a good thing. On one of the women's group calls a couple of weeks ago, I really tried to go into some depth about it's a form of betrayal when someone that uh, takes that gift that you have and then turns it around against you and then makes you feel like the gift of kindness or compassion is actually a negative thing because in a healthy, emotionally mature relationship, then that kindness can be an amazing thing. Now, the the kindness of trying to control or change others can be something that we could take a look at, but just as a value of kindness or compassion, that is a beautiful, amazing thing and will lead people to do really good things. But I think the part that the in this scenario, pathologically kind, or as Ross talks about the codependent person, that that kindness is putting then the needs of others far ahead of the needs of themselves And that's where I feel like when people are in healthy relationships, what happens over time is that kindness becomes nurtured and the person starts to feel like that really is one of their superpowers and they don't do that at the cost of their own self-esteem or their own self-image. They raise their emotional baseline up so they can be the best version of themselves and then use that kindness for good, not to try to explain or try to convince. And so I'm going to read an article off of a website called charterforcompassion.org and just listen to this title alone, this discovery. Kindness gene, so powerful it can be detected by strangers in 20 seconds. And, And this is some of that stuff that I really feel like three, four years ago, I would have looked at as, man, is that a little bit woo woo? Or now that we actually are finding the, the psychology and the science to back up the, the woo-woo around energy and vibes and, and all of these things. I mean, whether it's mirror neurons or pheromones or whatever that looks like. But now let's talk about your alleles and your DNA. So um, this is by Team of Lasto. Again, the, the article is titled Discovery, This Kindness Gene So Powerful It Can Be Detected by Strangers in 20 Seconds. Tima writes, is that man or woman across the bar somebody you can trust or empathetic enough to spill out your story of pain and suffering to? Researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, have found compelling evidence that healthy humans are hardwired to recognize empathetic strangers who can help them within 20 seconds. So if we go back to Ross's human magnet syndrome hypothesis that the pathologically caring, pathologically kind person, if they are the ones that are putting out this kindness energy vibe and we're going to see if it's literally in their DNA that then somebody can be hardwired to recognize that empathetic person within 20 seconds so then is that where the human magnet begins to form so there's a quote we've known that genotype can influence personality but we'd only ever studied what goes on inside a person things like behavioral scales and heart rate measurements says serena rodriguez saturn phd a senior author of the study and an assistant professor of psychology at Oregon State University in Corvallis. This is the first time anyone has observed how different genotypes manifest themselves in behaviors that complete strangers can pick up on. 
So over the past five to seven years, researchers have been exploring how genetics affect emotions, says Alexander Kogan, lead author of the study and a postdoctoral student at the University of Toronto at Mississauga. What we're learning is that to a certain extent, we have a genetic basis that supports a lot of the processes that make us nice. So you could have kindness and niceness literally in your DNA. In particular, researchers have focused on a hormone called oxytocin, which I've done an episode on the virtual couch. It's called the cuddle hormone, the feel-good drug that brings us together. So oxytocin has been linked to emotions like love and trust and is found in a variety of animals. Higher levels of oxytocin have been linked to higher levels of trustworthiness, empathy, and willingness to sacrifice, Kogan said. Widely known as the cuddle or love hormone, oxytocin is secreted into the bloodstream and the brain where it promotes social interaction, bonding, and romantic love, among other functions. So in this UC Berkeley study, 24 couples provided their DNA, and then researchers documented the couples while they discussed the times when they had suffered, and video recorded the partner who was listening. So later, a separate group of 116 observers viewed the 20-second video clips of the listeners, and says, and we asked uh, to rate which seemed the most trustworthy, kind, and compassionate, based on their facial expressions and body language. None of the viewers knew the video subjects, and they watched the clips with the sound off, so they had no knowledge of the situations being discussed. They were then asked to rate how kind, caring, and trustworthy the listening partner seemed based only on visual cues. So the listeners who got the highest ratings for empathy, it turned out, and here's where it gets kind of spooky, possess a particular variation of the oxytocin receptor gene known as the GG genotype. So the article says all humans inherit a variation of this gene or an allele from each parent. So the UC Berkeley study looked at the three combinations of gene variations of the oxytocin receptor. The most empathetic, able to get an accurate read on others' emotions, had two copies of this G allele. So in contrast, members of the AA and AG allele groups were found to be less capable of putting themselves in the shoes of others and more likely to get stressed out in difficult situations. So, I mean, I'm not a genetics expert or aficionado, but here is where if you have these two G alleles and getting each one of those from a parent, then you will literally have a greater capacity to put yourself in the shoes of others. And it looks like that is something that then can be outwardly, I don't know if it's manifested or if people just pick up on that. So Kogan said, people can't see genes. So there has to be something going on that is signaling these genetic differences to the strangers. He said, what we found is that people who had two copies of the G version displayed more trustworthy behaviors, more head nods, more eye contact, more smiling, more open body posture. And it was these behaviors that signaled kindness to the strangers. So I wonder then if this empathetic two uh, GG alleles in their genetic makeup person as they head nod, make more eye contact, more smiling, more open body posture, now meets up with the the pathological narcissist or the incredibly emotionally immature person who desperately, subconsciously, from childhood, wanted that validation and wanted to know that they matter. And if we look at deep attachment theory, if somebody didn't have a secure attachment with a parent, then they just need to know that they exist. And the way that they know that they exist is to absolutely, I want to say, ensnare or entrap someone so that they will always have this person there, there, period. Not saying a loving, mutually beneficial, reciprocal relationship, 
But let's say that, Pat, and this is my hypothesis, that pathological narcissist meets this double G allele oxytocin superpower empathetic kind person who all of a sudden is putting out this vibe or energy to the person who desperately at their core just desires connection but doesn't know how to do it accurately or correctly. They only know how to do that in a controlling way, not taking ownership of things. And then you've got the person with continuing to head nod, make eye contact, smiling, open body posture. And it just seems like you can almost see the pieces starting to fit together of what creates this human magnet syndrome. So Kogan pointed out that having the AA or AG instead of the GG genotype does not mark a person as unsympathetic. So this isn't an all or nothing kind of concept. And he says, although scientists used to refer to the genes A variant as a risk variant because it increases risk of autism and social dysfunction, many experts now think of the variation as just that, variation, that may, along with other forces, play out in personalities. Our Rodriguez uh, Saturn said, it's important to understand that some people are naturally more held back or may be overcome by their own personal stresses and have a hard time relating to others. She says, these are people who just may need to be coaxed out of their shells a little. It may not be that we need to fix people who exhibit less social traits, but that we recognize that they are overcoming a genetically influenced trait and that they may need more understanding and encouragement. And this is where that that just fine line or there's so much gray area where uh, when I like to say that, okay, let's start with the uh, almost the hypothesis or the assumption that we really none of us have the, the right tools to communicate effectively. And so then it's a matter of we go through things and, and then we have to find tools. We have to get help. But then that process, now finding the right tool and then implementing the tool, and now you've got two people in the relationship. So as one person changes the dynamic of the relationship, it really is up to them now to self-confront and, and really say, okay, now I get it. It's my opportunity for me to be a better person, to show up different in this relationship and not try to fix the other person. But at that point, then is the other person going to recognize they too don't know what they don't know? And is that going to be an opportunity to self-confront? So I feel like that can start to sound a little bit overwhelming. But if we start knowing what we didn't know, then now we can have this opportunity to change. So Kogan said that many factors ultimately influence kindness and cooperation. He said the oxytocin receptor gene is one of those factors, but there are many other forces in play, both genetic and non-genetic. So here we go into the nature or nurture. Kogan said how all these pieces fit together to create the coherent whole of an individual who is or is not kind is still a great mystery that we're only beginning to scratch. So I want to be very clear that I just found this fascinating and all of these are, I'm just throwing out some hypotheses, but when you combine this kindness, this kindness gene, and then you look at pathological narcissism and you look at pathological caring and kindness, as uh, Ross Rosenberg has talked about, I just feel like, okay, the picture is starting to become a little more clear. But then I find myself being guilty of what I say so often of, you know, sometimes we try to make sense of things that don't make sense. So it's nice to bring awareness, kind of a check this out. I wonder if it may be that helps us move forward as individuals on starting to recognize, okay, if I have two of these G alleles and I have this superpower gift of empathy and my oxytocin is flowing, then that means I'm actually, I'm okay. And if the other person in the relationship is not someone who is able to recognize, appreciate, or support the emotionally kind person, then that doesn't mean that you can go against your genetic code, your DNA. If anything, man, what an opportunity to lean into that. So in an emotionally mature relationship, I would hope that the partner of somebody that is 
kind and compassionate can start to really recognize that as that is them. What a what an amazing gift and opportunity it is to be in a relationship with somebody who is pathologically kind, who has these double G alleles uh, sitting in their DNA that makes that oxytocin flowing. And if somebody then, let's say the more emotionally immature person can recognize, man, you know, I'm the one that is dealing with my discomfort in an unhealthy way. And I can recognize that my partner is my partner and what a gift. And then hopefully that will allow them to start to do their own work and self-confront. And the two of you maybe can meet someday in a both emotionally mature and healthy way. And I find that even right now, as I'm saying that, what a mix, I'm sure, the people that are hearing this, because there are people that still just desperately want to believe that this can be their situation, their relationship. And that's where I want to say this entire podcast is designed to meet you where you're at, but ultimately know that you are okay, that you are enough, that it's okay for you to have your own thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And the more we start learning about the brain, DNA, these uh, alleles that are sitting on chromosomes, that it really is who you are. And so someone telling you not to be who you are, it's just not a helpful, uh, productive thought or exercise. And the more that you are trying to defend who you are, or the more that you are shrinking so that others around you won't feel uncomfortable then that is going against your very nature, you know, the very core of who you are all the way down to your chromosomal level. So hopefully this is something that can help you feel a little bit more of acceptance of what a gift. And if someone is trying to say, I I don't like that gift, well, bless their heart. They don't really know what that gift's like. And unfortunately, they may spend so much time trying to control your gift, your thoughts, your experience that they too are missing out on a whole important part of life, which is trying to figure out who they are. But that's not on you. So I would love to know your thoughts. If you have additional questions, comments, uh, anything like that, feel free to send them to me through the website, TonyOverbay.com, or send them to me at contact at TonyOverbay.com. Or you can interact with the post or the story that will go up about this on Instagram or on Facebook. And I just appreciate you being here. And just know that, man, you really, as cliche as it sounds, you're good. You're enough. I see you. And wherever you're at is where you are right now. And that's okay. Check that out. You're not doing anything wrong. You're starting to figure things out. And it can feel uncomfortable a lot of the times. We don't like discomfort. Sometimes being able to sit with a little bit of that discomfort, you find out that, hey, I survived and I'm okay. And that'll start to give you a little bit of momentum. So work on that emotional baseline. Self-care is not selfish. That's the first step after recognizing that, okay, this is a thing. Something's happening here. So get yourself in a place where you can do even more work to better yourself, to put yourself in a better position. And then either that person that you're in a relationship with is maybe going to say, all right, man, I don't want to miss out on that. But in reality, you're going to discover that, oh, I'm okay. I'm a pretty amazing person. And that's what's going to lift those around you as well as yourself. So thanks again for joining me. We'll see you next week on Waking Up to Narcissism.